This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. Sick is a podcast about what happens when things go wrong in the places meant to keep us healthy. It's produced by SideFX Public Media at our flagship station, WFYI. And its first season is now fully released. It's about the story of a fertility doctor in Indiana who spent years deceiving his patients, something only recently discovered due to the growing popularity of mail-in DNA tests. We sat down with Jake Harper and Lauren Bavis, who produced and hosted this first season, about how they did it and what they learned. Jake and Lauren, welcome. Hey, Matt. Hey. So can you give us a quick summary of what this first season of Sick was about? Yeah, sure. So we basically went pretty deep into the story of Dr. Donald Klein. Uh, Klein was a fertility specialist who who was in practice from 1971 through 2009. That's when he retired. And he, um, in 2016, it, it came out publicly that uh, Klein had used his own sperm to impregnate uh, dozens of, well, at the time it wasn't dozens, but it's since become dozens of women. Uh, and we sort of tell that story from start to finish from sort of that moment of discovery. And then and then we kind of backtrack and talk talk to people about how that information was uncovered and how that impacts the people who who uh, are now connected to Klein through their DNA. What was the biggest challenge reporting on this, which is a huge and complex story? I would say one of the biggest challenges was that we weren't able to actually talk to Klein himself. Um, we, we put in a lot of effort trying to get in touch with him. We started by sending him emails, which, you know, he responded to a little bit at first. Uh, we eventually dropped a letter in his mailbox, tried to talk to his lawyer, who he had referred us and, you know, other reporters over the years to. Um, and then we, we went to his house and, and weren't able to talk to him. So answering a lot of the questions that we are wanting to answer, a lot of the questions that we had, he was the only one who could do that. Um, and because we weren't able to talk to him, we had to find out as much as we could through other sources. And we ended up doing that. Well, you weren't able to talk to him, but we do hear from him quite a bit in the podcast. How'd you get a hold of that audio? And it's mostly it's mostly in courtrooms, right? That we hear that? Courtrooms and, and sort of interview rooms. So we, we early pretty early on we requested some documents from the Marion County Prosecutor's Office. Klein Klein did go to court for I guess related issues uh to, to what he did to these these patients. Um and so we we filed a records request and got um, got some material and that included audio of Klein, um, both in in sort of a interview that he did with investigators and uh, and then separately we filed we filed um, to get court audio and then uh, yeah that's how you're able to hear his voice and this is a very serious story but it's presented in this in this compelling true crime kind of way which I think is fun for a lot of people to hear, even though it is a very serious story. We're dealing with serious subject matter. Uh, was it at all fun for you? What's the, what was the most fun part of putting it together? Yeah, I mean, this was really different reporting than I know I've ever gotten to do. Um, at WFY, we put together radio features, which are these sort of four-minute long, uh, sometimes investigations, sometimes kind of uh, interviews talking to people uh, related to health and public health and their stories. Um, but this was getting to tell the same story, you know, week after week and getting to use some different uh, storytelling elements in there and, you know, holding some details back and revealing them later. So it was it was really interesting, a different kind of reporting. And I mean, the reporting we do, too, can it's kind of lonely to be a journalist. Sometimes you're on your own doing 
you know, your stories and gathering your tape. And this time Jake and I got to work together and it was kind of fun to tag team a project, too. Yeah. And you mentioned the sort of the brevity that you're usually confined to. And this time you can really dig in and tell the entire story, as it were. Do you feel like you got to? Uh, to the extent that we could, like, like Lauren said, we, you know, we weren't able to talk to Klein, even if we had, you know, gone to his door and, and he had answered, I'm not sure how forthcoming he would have been. Um, I think that's probably the most frustrating part of all this is that I, I not just for us, but, but for the siblings and the, and the parents involved with this is that they don't have a clear explanation of, uh, you know, why Klein was doing this for so long. And, and instead of, you know, what the standard practice was, which was to find a medical resident and use their sperm. Um, so, yeah. Is that among the questions you would have liked to have asked him? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's I mean, I think that's the main thing we would have talked to him about if we had gotten him is 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 why did you do this? And sort of I mean, we, we planned out an, an interview that we never actually got to do, but um, that was the main thing that we were planning to sort of dive in on is is the why. So if that was the main thing, what else were you going to ask him had you gotten the chance? I think we asked, you know, all the, the siblings and, and former patients we talked to, you know, questions that they had for him. And that was like Jake said when we were outlining what we would have wanted to talk to him about. Um you know, why he, he wasn't willing to share his own uh, medical history with them, with people who, you know, suddenly in some in some cases had, you know, a complete half of their medical history wiped out and had no idea what kind of health pitfalls or things they should be concerned about. Um, why he did this, how he did this. Um, he explained a little bit in some of those interviews with investigators that we tried to, to play for listeners to give them a better idea since, you know, that was really the only long form way you were going to hear from him. Um, that's, those were some of the questions. What was it like reaching out to some of these uh, siblings and talking to them? Uh, it kind of depends on the sibling. I mean, some some we reached out to early on and they got back to us and we like Matt, uh, who you'll hear from. We, you know, I reached out to him and talked to him in his car for like three hours the first time, just because I, I was starting from, from pretty little knowledge to in, in wanting to know who he was and his experience and all this. Uh, and, and others, it took us a few months to sort of convince, uh, told us, talk to them and do, do an interview. Um, so kind of, yeah, it's, and, and some people that we wanted to talk to were never willing to talk to us. So it, it just kind of depended on, on who we were talking about. Yeah. And so what, what did you find out about who Dr. Klein was? We went back through a lot of archival material, old newspaper clippings, uh, some uh, some sort of health news show uh, had some archival footage of Klein that we went through, uh, and we talked to some of his his classmates and and uh, sort of colleagues uh, who who were who were practicing um, OBGYN work in in the same time period, and so we we sort of used those sources to try to get a more complete picture of who he was, and we we found out that that Klein. Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, we knew this, but Klein was a very religious man, um, and I think that was one of the one of the major factors in in sort of how he practiced medicine. So he he was performing fertility procedures uh, on his patients, and and one of the things that he ended up pushing was egg freezing. Um, this was sort of after IVF came about, um, and he had sort of an ideological. Uh, opposition to to freezing embryos because he considers those to be 
lives, you mm-hmm. know, human lives, um, and freezing them without sort of a plan for uh, implantation is is sort of a problem. So he was pushing that technology pretty early on be, what, while it was still experimental and not really all that great uh, in terms of success rates. Um, and, yeah, I, he played basketball in college and ended up uh, losing his scholarship because he got an injury. I don't, yeah, we learned a lot of uh, sort of random details. We know about dozens of these siblings who are now in their 30s and 40s. Do we know how long he was able, how long he did this? Yeah, we were able to establish um, a timeline both with the help of the siblings who told us about the, the most recently found um, people through these uh, direct-to-consumer DNA tests. That's where they get connected a lot through 23 And this is how this all kind of blew up, too, Right, just this stuff. Right, was, was people submitting their DNA and then seeing that they had way more connections than they ever anticipated or thought that made sense. Well, and that, that relies on other siblings having taken these tests as well, right? And right. so when and when when one sibling sibling say the first sibling took the test, are they then informed of the other sibling taking the test after their test results come in and that's kind of how this blew up? So I, I've never done one of these tests, but I think that the way that it works is that you can uh, set up an account and those accounts then can notify you when someone else who's a match shows up. And I mean, with these tests, you can also opt in not to learn anything about the people who you're related to. So it's even possible that people could have taken this test and just haven't clicked that box that says, oh, I'd like to be connected to people who share ancestry with me. Um, and yeah, I mean, what we kind of wanted to explore in the show and, and really let listeners know is more people get added to this growing group of siblings every time these tests go on sale. And I know I've gotten Facebook ads all month long about Black Friday sales and holiday sales. And so in the next couple of weeks, I mean, there could be even more names that get added. What did you find out through your work on this about how common this is about doctors using their own sperm to impregnate uh, women? Yeah. So the first episode came out in mid-October. And by late October, there had been a new uh, lawsuit filed in Colorado about a doctor who uh, allegedly used his own sperm and now has, I think, they've identified like 10 half-siblings. This is way more prevalent than I would have ever thought um, in the reporting process this year. Uh, three, as far as I know, new states have had cases. I mentioned Colorado, Arkansas, Ohio. Um, this has happened in Texas and in Idaho. It you know, continues to happen. And as more people maybe take these DNA tests, it might show up in other places. What's reaction been like to the podcast? I I understand we've gotten quite a few downloads. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been good. It's it's hard not to see like the the negative reviews that get posted and and focus on those. But I but overwhelmingly, the you know, the ratings that we get on Apple are are really positive. all my friends tell me they like it, so <laughs> it must be good, right? Well, and you've gotten recommendations, too, from from uh, sort of national groups who are, you know, online recommending podcasts and things like that. Um, that had to have felt good. Yeah, I think one of the, the best things, too, because we wanted to, to tell the story about um, – you know, Donald Klein and all the people who were affected by him. But we also wanted to take a broader view and look at a field of medicine that's really growing, which is fertility treatment. Um, And this case that happened many, many years ago, but then what's also happening in the field today. Um, And some of my favorite reviews have been people who said, I would never have looked into this story about this kind of treatment on my own, but now I've learned something and learned about the history of it. And that sort of makes me feel like we did our job. 
it's it's all the periphery that I really enjoyed as well. I mean, the story itself is compelling and strange, and uh, but 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 learning everything else to the aside. Okay, what are you planning for season two of the podcast? Are you sick of people asking that question? Yeah, sick. Hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, not exactly sick of it. It's it's one of those things where we're actually still looking for for a story to dive in on. I mean, we have we have a lot of topics that we're interested in. Um, but but part of the the challenge with you know the the format that we've chosen for the show is we need we need stories with real people that can sort of unfold over um, several episodes and uh, and so that's what we're sort of keeping an eye out for now. So if you you have a good idea, if you're someone who'd be willing to to share a story that's happened to you or an idea, um, you can go to our website, which is sickpodcast.org, and at the top of the page there's a link for a contact form, and please fill it out and and tell us about you and your story. That was Jake Harper and Lauren Bavis, the producers and hosts behind Sick, a podcast from SideFX Public Media. Up next, we'll hear from two people central to the Dr. Klein story about what it was like to discover the truth and how they're doing now that they know it. I'm Matt Pelser. We're back in 90 seconds. This is All In. This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. Before we get back to our conversation on the Sick podcast, on the story of an Indiana fertility doctor... I want to mention our last show. We end every week with the Friday Pitch-In, where we catch up on some of the biggest Indiana headlines of the week and dive deep into a couple stories we want to know more about. You can find that show and all our shows wherever you get podcasts. Today, we're talking about the first season of The Sick Podcast, produced at WFYI by SideFX Public Media. We talked with the people who made the podcast, and now we're joined by two people at the center of the story, Liz White and Matt White, a mother and son who were featured in the show. This conversation is pre-recorded, so we can't get your questions to our panel. But as always, we'd love your thoughts. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at All in Indiana. Matt, welcome. Thank you. And thank you, Liz, for coming. Thank you. You went through fertility treatment. Uh, what was it like to go through that back then? So um, initially, I went to a uh, doctor once I heard my, that my husband was uh, infertile um, and got the frozen sperm at the time for 1980 for about a year and a half. At that time, that frozen sperm only had a 5% fertility rate. So he referred me at that time then to Dr. Klein in 1981, in the fall of 1981. Mm. And Matt, what was what was your experience with fertility treatment? Um, you know, I found out in my late twenties uh, that I was not able to have children, and um, so went down the path of selecting a, a donor through an online database, and you know could easily filter out you know height, you know weight, you know attributes that kind of fit my um, both personality and appearance. And, um, you know, you, you, you pay for it online, you have to submit some notarized documents, but you never have any tangible hold of the specimen. Um, it goes straight from the, from the source to your doctor's office and then um, in the exam room. Um, and uh, that's about it. How does that compare, Liz, to how it worked back when you did it? 
Well, it's absolutely the opposite. So coming into the infertility specialist, Dr. Klein, he was the only one in the office. So I walked in alone, and it's a uh, he came out to the small waiting room, greeted me, uh, walked me back, showed me the uh, what the magazine room would be, explained that he used only donors, a medical residence of St. Vincent's Hospital, which is directly across the street from his office. He then walked me back uh, with my husband the first time, and we sat at his desk, and he explained um, that he used those residents, and he would match only what we know outside at characteristics, six foot, brown hair, brown eyes, and um, and no known uh, genetic factors that, that would be known to that particular resident. And he would use that resident only three times. Um, and the fee would be only in cash and check, $7,000 to him, and to bring cash each time for the donor, and that I would proceed the next time of my ovulation a period and bring in cash each time, which is three times per month. What did you think, Liz, of Dr. Klein back then, based on the time that you spent with him at the time? Initially, our interview with him, obviously, you're coming out of two and a half years of trying to conceive. Um, he was aware of the, you know, the sadness we felt um, wanting to have a conception of our family on our own, but was not able to do that. And his wall was very filled with lots of pictures of babies born, and he seemed pretty optimistic and was quite friendly. He explained uh, his procedure that each time that I would come in, he would then walk me back to the exam room. And then while I derobed and draped my uh, lower part of my body, he would then leave the room and come back with a sample from that resident and insert it. And then I would wait 20 minutes. And um, I did not want to ever see my donor, um, nor did, did I ever know his his name. And I wanted very clear that that donor was not thinking about me in a sexual way. That he was thinking about his loved one, mm. and um, and because it was it was more of a very awkward thing to do to take the conception of the having a child out of the bedroom or an intimate place with your husband or partner and into a medical exam room. The medical exam room was very sterile. He was the only one in the office. Um, you know, and so he came in, handed me the sheet to as a drape, closed the door, and went back, of course, back in the back room. And I was thinking he was retrieving the uh, medical residence sample, but that's not the case. No, he was retrieving his own sample. Yes, he was. So that that that's the most disturbing piece. As I gone into study the science behind. Um, the whole situation that we had went through is that he went back to his own space, wherever that might be in the rest of his office. It was not a big office. Um, and then he had to think sexual thoughts, not only to get the erection, but even deep think sexual thoughts to get it to the ejaculation point. And it wasn't just with you. It was with dozens of other women. Yes, we have 70 years. known children at, okay. at the time. The the number uh, I checked this morning um, is currently at sixty five mm. from a okay. date range of nineteen seventy two to nineteen eighty eight. And uh, Liz, how did you find out he did this? Well, it all started with Matt. For thirty five years, um, I felt blessed that a 
medical resident had the intuition and the kindness to understand the difficulty for us of not of wanting a family and not being able to biologically have that and that we were seeking the expertise and they were willing to provide their sample to support that um so for 35 years i felt uh this tremendous dedicated this sense of um just gratefulness to a man that I would never know, but a man made, you know, uh, a great change in my life, and I have had Matt. And that was the most beautiful moment to find out I was pregnant, then a beautiful moment to have Matt then uh, in late November of 1982. So um, Matt can better explain we stayed out east. I had a second child um, with a different infertility doctor who provided live sperm as well in the state of New Jersey at Rutgers University. His his procedures were far more different. They're very similar to what Matt has described. The nurse is present. There's uh, all kinds of documentation. And it took me longer to get pregnant with him um, because it took time for the travel of that, that medical resident um, to actually get the insemination into my body. So we have two doctors coexisting at the same time, one practicing very ethically and the other one, Dr. Klein, practicing very unethically. And um, I, um, we were out there about 34 years. I served at Ground Zero, and I came back from the 15th year tribute to that uh, event on um, September 12th of 2016. And then Matt can take over and explain how – or fifth. Uh, September 11th, I came back that evening, and you texted me the Monday morning of September 12th, 2016. Mm. Yeah, I, um, I, you know, like my mom said, we grew up out in the East Coast, but, you know, always came back to Indiana because that's where family was from, and, you know, we would drive along 86th Street on the north side of Indianapolis, and she would always point out the building where... Um, you know, Dr. Klein's practice was, and, you know, she spoke just, she just was ear to ear and, and, and a smile each time because that was a very happy place for her. Um, you know, that's where, you know, she was able to be, uh, you know, uh, get pregnant and, and um, have me. So she always pointed it out. And um, you one day, that day, uh, September 12th, 2016, I was just uh, reading the local news on my phone during lunch, as I kind of typically do. And, um, you know, I knew a little bit about the story or, you know, how my mom uh, got, you know, pregnant with me. But um, I came across uh, the, the article about you know, a local fertility doctor who is being charged with obstruction of justice related to an investigation about whether or not he used his own sperm um, without his patient's knowledge and consent in the 70s and 80s. And um, I, I pretty much immediately got his name, went on to Google, typed in, typed in where, you know, his name because I wanted to see where his office was. Mm. And sure enough, it, it popped up exactly – uh, right at the building that my mom pointed out to me all those years. And um, right when I did that, uh, a picture of him came up as well. And um, I knew I was looking at my biological father. Mm. And um, it was a lot of confusion. Mm. He sent me that text. Um, I knew immediately, too, that we were a part of this um, whole thing. 
Matt looks so much like his own biological son. And um, I immediately have such clarity of that time because it was only five and a half months of seeing him that I got pregnant. And I remember the joy and remember what it was all like. Um, And then to have that whole belief totally turned completely around. I worked at one of the local hospitals here in mental health and um, had been seeing a lot of offenders or victims of abuse. And that was the first thing was I thought I had been raped 15 times without knowing it, Mm. not being told the truth. Um, And with a man of a position of power, um, uh, during a time of very closed secrecy about what he was doing, he um, encouraged us to not talk about it with anyone else. We were already very private about it. We didn't want my husband to feel embarrassed about his own not ability to not have children. Um, and so I went ahead and, and went with that. And um, I always didn't like secret keeping. And so I thought when Matt talked about it in high school, well, why not? I'm telling my two children that, yep, you are donor conceived. And they had a great deal of empathy for my husband. Um, but back in the time, I have now found out since we just found out about the, our story that not only did I go, but a cousin of mine went, a good friend of mine was going at the same time. We were all going at the same time, but we would never talk about it. And that's, that is the shame that we had about being an infertile couple. And it was a very well-defined way that Klein set up his office, being the sole person there, the sole person knowing about his deceit and his lies and his persistence over the course of so many years with so many women. And had it not been the due diligence of one of the siblings born or one of the children born, we would not know the reality of his untruthfulness. And the sad part to say was there is no law against what he did. And um, I was a mess. Mm. I was an absolute mess for six months a year. Mm-hmm. Um I felt like a rape victim. I had all the um, diagnostic criteria. Um, And there are moments that I still, as the number grows, because I include his four biological children, as the number grows, that means there's more women that got harmed. There's more children to talk about this, this scenario. I am glad they have each other. It's being in a professional field that I was in the hospital where you don't dare do those kinds of things. You don't even you don't even think about it. You don't even. It was such a um, absurd thing that he did. You think, oh my God, are you kidding me? You went back and ejaculated, knowing my face. Were you thinking about me? Were you thinking about your wife? Who were you thinking about? Are you thinking about you? And then putting the pictures and having picnics every year with the kids, 
that were born through his office? I mean, how sick can one get to think about the narcissism that gets and the use of his power? Have you tried to get in contact with Dr. Klein? No, but I've often thought about um, <laughs> finding his address and just following him someday to some private, private or public place and confronting confronting him. Um, what would you say? You know, I've thought about that a lot because there is more of my own respect for myself to use words that I can walk away and live with. But I will certainly would walk up to him and say that he was the most brazen, narcissistic physician and story I have ever heard in all my 45 years of mental health working with victims of sexual assault. Matt, I want to ask you what the community of siblings is like. Do you do you uh, do a lot of you talk to each other? Yeah, um, it, it's evolved for sure. Um, you know, uh, when I found out, I might have been number ten, maybe, and now we have sixty-five. Um, you know, I, I view it as you know we've got. You know, different friends for different things. We've got friends we like to enjoy music with. We've got friends we like to do um, sporting activities with or um, make beer or enjoy, you know, spirits and things like that. So um, you definitely gravitate towards certain individuals that you share commonalities to. Um, by no means are we all going to ever get along or you're going to find a bond between, you know, all 65 of these people. Um, I think there's you have to get that in your mindset from the very beginning. Um, and what I've kind of said from day one is that, you know, we don't have to all agree on each other because everyone's got different opinions. Um, some people are a little bit more accepting of this. Some people are a little bit more angered and then. You just have a whole range of emotions, but there's no idiot's guide to tell you how to deal with this. So, you know, as long as we're respecting each other and just kind of, you know, showing uh, empathy towards one another and, you know, just supporting each other because no one knows what we're going through. No one knows what the mothers are going through except those that are going through it. And, um, you know, I think this the support group, um, definitely um, helps new people that are coming along. You know, there's people that have been in this for many years. I mean, I've only been in it for three, but, you know, those that kind of uncovered the secret um, have been in it for a lot longer. And so you've got different perspectives, personalities, but, um, you know, we, we definitely um, get together and, and um, you know, I definitely gravitate towards some more than others for sure. I feel blessed that there's so many kids. I often uh, tease Matt. I go, well, now you have sisters that you didn't have to argue over the bathroom about, and and they were taking far too much time with their hair or whatever. Um, And uh, I think that's a joy. That's a, a wonderful joy. 
We'll keep the conversation going after the break with Liz White and Matt White, a mother and son featured in the first season of The Sick Podcast. Up next, we'll bring in IU law professor Jody Madeira to talk about why it was such a challenge to hold Klein legally accountable in Indiana and the legislation that could make that change. I'm Matt Pelser, back in 90 seconds. This is All In. This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. Back now to our recent conversations on the first season of Sick, a podcast from SideFX Public Media, which focused on the story of an Indiana fertility doctor who spent years secretly using his own sperm to impregnate his patients. We're joined again by Liz White and Matt White, a mother and son featured in the podcast. And we'll hear now from Jody Madeira, a law professor at Indiana University who became interested and eventually involved in the Klein case. Jody, how did you get involved in this case? Well, I think it was sort of a long road, and I believe it began, um, some might say it began in 2007 when I went through IVF for the first time, which set in motion my own involvement in these topics. But I, I believe that the most direct assessment came from when I published my book uh, in 2018 and was interviewed by the Indy Star. And uh, both Jacoba and uh, Liz reached out to me and asked if I was interested in working on a law in Indiana that would make this conduct illegal. Yeah. Why was it so hard to hold Klein accountable, accountable legally? I think there are several reasons. And I think, too, that uh, first of all, there's just the time that passes between the um, it, the incident in question and the discovery. I mean, whoever knew that it would be possible to find out, you know, 30 years later who your genetic father was. And this technology wasn't available at the time. So the law didn't have mechanisms in place, you know, back in the 70s and 80s to uh, basically hold people accountable who might misuse genetic uh, tissue, who might misuse genetic um, materials like uh, gametes and like embryos. And so I think there's just the inability of the law to envision what crimes of the future will look like, for example. Um, and I hate to say it's a crime of the future, but that's really what it is, because our detection abilities suddenly arrive in 2011, 2012, right? Um, and they're placed into consumers' hands. And the second reason, I think, is because there's certain crimes that the law envisions and certain crimes that's very hard that's very hard to anticipate will ever take place um and this isn't so much from a technology standpoint as from a um an intent perspective so we're used to thinking in terms of murder we're used to thinking in terms of fraud and deception but this is really something entirely different this is this is novel we'd never seen anything like it before and so when we have fraud for example, Indiana's fraud laws envision credit card fraud, envision identity theft. And this is uh, the stealing of a genetic identity, right? This is the stealing of a family building plan of a, of a future um, that a husband and a wife intend to make together. And I don't think that the law um, is good at encapsulating those types of harms in criminal law. Certainly, um, it gets closer in civil law, but it, it's just very difficult, I think, for it to imagine. And so what is the bill that passed this year, Senate Bill 174? Senate Bill 174 is an amazing, an amazing um, legal advance. And it's amazing for several reasons. Um, first of all, it allows a civil and a criminal case to be brought against doctors, um, against clinic technicians, against any medical professionals who engage in fertility fraud. And fertility fraud, according to the law, 
is the use of reproductive materials, um, gametes or embryos, in a way either that doesn't accord with the consent of the progenitors or that is without the consent of the recipient. So either you violate the wishes of the people who provide the gametes or reproductive tissues, or you violate the wishes of those who receive them. And again, it's it's important that it's criminal or civil because that's two different paths to accountability. Um, criminally, of course, this law does not allow us to charge um, Donald Klein, but um, it allows us to hold responsible anyone who engages in this conduct in the future. And that is a low-level felony, so it does encap it does encapsulate the understanding that this is not just a misdemeanor. This is a, a grievous harm, a very serious violation, uh, not only of people's autonomy and dignity, but also just of the sense of um, moral right, I think. Um, civilly, this allows people to opt for $10,000 in liquidated damages um, if they've suffered this wrong, or they can pursue this in a court case and get a larger settlement. Uh, but what is very, very nice about this is it allows the patient, the patient's partner, or the children of the patient to um, actually seek recompense in a court of law. And that's very important because in one case, uh, Mortimer versus Rowlett, um, which has advanced to the motion stage, um, this uh, something devastating happened, and that's that the um, doctor-conceived child was dismissed from the lawsuit on the grounds that only patients of the doctor could recover, and she could not have been a patient because she had not yet been conceived when this harm took place. And of course, again, it, it shows how the law sees this as a one-time harm, right, as against the patient and not against the child, not as a continuing violation that goes on for generations. And this Senate Bill 174 went into effect in July. Matt and Liz, you worked on getting that bill passed. What was that like? Oh, man, that was that was a lot of effort. That was <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not a very political person, um, you know, nor did I know how the process worked. Um, but, you know, my mom and I, um, with the help of some other siblings and, and Jody, um, just jumped right in head first and spent countless hours making phone calls to legislative assistants, writing letters, trying to set up meetings. You know, for a normal citizen to engage in the legislative process, it, it's just virtually not possible. I mean, I, I was I benefited from the fact that my office is only about two blocks from the Capitol building. So and, and I had a flexible schedule that I could, um, you know, quickly jump over there and, and meet folks. But the the amount of effort that it took to, first of all, educate legislators on this story and, and just infertility and the practices that go out there today uh, that occur out there today um, at, at the end of the process. Um, they added to the bill, which didn't really move forward. Um, they recommended a summer study session on um, uh, uh, legal issues surrounding reproductive medicine and fertility treatments because they learned that there's a lot going on out there that isn't really controlled in the manner that it should be to protect um, all the parties that are involved, particularly, you know, who is donating the source of the reproductive material, the recipients, and everyone involved. So unfortunately, that didn't uh, occur, um, you know, hopefully in the future um, as more and more cases like this come out and um, basically 
legislators are educated on the topic that, um, you know, we'll continue to get some more safeguards and policies in place to protect patients. We're hearing from Matt White, uh, who has been featured in the SICK podcast. He's here with his mother, Liz, and we're also on the line with Jody Madeira, law professor at Indiana University. We're talking about the SICK podcast and the case of Donald Klein, the uh, fertility doctor from Indianapolis who used his own semen in uh, impregnating women uh, through the 70s and 80s. And uh, Jody, is there anything else that you're working on with lawmakers, either at the state or federal level? I know that there are efforts that um, I'm coordinating on in other states, and those those efforts are going on in uh, a handful of states right now, states in which I believe these cases have come up. And um, but I think the Holy Grail is a is a federal law. And I think that's uh, one of the obstacles to the federal laws, of course, um, fertility technologies are so drastically unregulated in this country, as opposed to, you know, especially Europe, um, most other countries around the world. And while some states have a very comprehensive um, regulatory scheme like California that governs some aspects of reproductive technologies, no state really um, sort of encapsulates a robust regulation, even from the fraud or deception angle. So I think it's it's a it's a hard row to um, like Matt said, it's just very hard to educate these individuals unless there is a case in the state that seems very, you know, in your face and in the news and very present. Was there anyone at the state house who was against this, this uh, Senate Bill 174? Do you hear any arguments against it at all? I can speak to that. Um, Senator Mike Young, who is the chairman of the Senate Committee on Laws and Corrections Committee, um, was reluctant because I, we were not aware, I was not personally aware, and just moved back from the East Coast, that the statutes had been gone through thoroughly and they deleted laws that were no longer applicable to this particular time, and they were trying to consolidate that. And that was a few years back. So this, we come forward, and I think what is really um, he was reluctant to take that in. And what was wonderful is that we began to learn who were the most respected people within the state house itself. And it didn't matter what political party they were affiliated, they could listen to the story. So what they did was come up with an idea to bring it into the Judiciary Committee, where Senator Head was the head last year, and then add the criminal component as it came into that committee. And I thought that was brilliant because, Jody, you were a part of such a wonderful piece to that. And um, the other attorneys that spoke up about that, that being an important part. And we were one of the cases where here we are, a lobby of a couple people, not a industry, um, trying to create change in a positive way. And without your help, Judy, I don't think that would have been able to be created. And we also want you to know, too, it was the one, one law that went through unanimously, both through the House and through the Senate. So it was somewhere along the line, Mike Young even agreed that this was important. Jody, you had your own issues with fertility treatment. Can you talk about what happened? Uh, sure. Um, back in 2007, uh, my husband, Matt, and I decided to start a family. But unfortunately, we had a pretty devastating miscarriage early on. And I remember it was Christmas time when it happened. And it's just not that it's not devastating at any time. But, you know, we were planning on telling family and it was it was a terrible time of year. And we discovered we could not have children after that. 
So after enduring probably a year of being told to just relax by a, a gynecologist, we got into a leading fertility clinic in Boston and ultimately conceived uh, triplets, believe it or not. And Jody, can you talk about some of the different um, fertility fraud cases that you've seen around the country? Sure. Um, so I would say that Donald Klein, the Donald Klein case is certainly the first and the largest, and it is certainly one of the oddest um, for several aspects. Um, but just in general, there is a lot of similarities between these cases. First of all, um, there is always a male doctor who is white and patients who are white. There is no minority patients. There are no minority doctors. And it makes sense if you think about it, because, you know, these are doctors who want to easily substitute their own sperm for their patients. And so if they have any particular characteristics which may make them stand out, then that is going to be um, a difficulty. Um, actually, I take that back. There is the Ben Ramillay case in Connecticut, where apparently in the early 2000s, there was a white doctor out of Connecticut who substituted his own sperm allegedly for a, um, a uh, for the husband's sperm in a couple that I believe the mother was from the Dominican Republic and the father was African-American. And so it was very obvious when the um, twins were born, resulting from the, um, I believe that was IVF, that these were not the children of either the husband or even a, a minority donor. This was the doctor. And so um, that case is, is, is odd because it settled very quickly after the couple sued the doctor and the proceedings were sealed. And the Connecticut Department of Public Health did take action against the doctor. They did make him pay a $10,000 fine, but um, they still allowed him to practice and keep his license. And so I believe there was this came to light in 2014. So that is sort of the case that breaks the mold. Um, every other case, you know, there are white doctors, white patients, and these are very, you know, um, consistently cases from the 1970s and 1980s for the most part. Um, in these cases, the doctors tell the patients they're using the sperm either of the husband or of an anonymous medical resident that resembles the husband. Sometimes they say they will use the sperm of the donor entirely. Sometimes they say they will mix the sperm. And uh, then what proceeds to happen is that, of course, the doctor uses his own sperm and the couple or the uh, child actually finds out and tells the parents of this discovery 30 years uh, later about. There are some um, some cases that predate the 1970s and 1980s. They're few and far between, and they have not become public, um, but they are they are different both in terms of the reactions of the children. Some of them believe that it's not a harm uh, or are grateful to the doctor for having done this. Um, and they're also very different in the willingness of these children and the parents to go public and to seek accountability from the physicians. One of the weirdest and most um, horrifying twists in these cases, in some cases that are public, and in some cases that are not, the doctor goes on to actually examine, perform pelvic and breast examinations on the adult female children that he um, conceived with his own sperm. And I think that is one of those things that makes your just stomach turn uh, when you hear about it, because that's a, a, another form of violation. Wow. Liz, I want to ask you uh, finally what you want people to take away from your story, because when I was hearing the podcast, what I wanted more of, and we got a little bit of it, was was more of a more of a how are you doing now? I guess. You know, I think with uh, the tremendous support that we've had around ourselves, I'm doing much better. Um, you know, there's just times when it's really hard. Um, it's hard to hear a new story, and just like the story that Jody alluded to, where Klein is now seeing a child. 
uh, possibly born from one of his original mothers that he impregnated, and and such an awesome, horrible violation. And being in the world of mental health for so long, and knowing the, that impact, um, for me, I still have a part of me wish that none of this happened. Um, I um, I try to balance my life better, and I try to pursue the the things that are important to change legislatively. I think that's my courtroom. I see it as my courtroom in the sense of if I can do anything to make it better for someone else, then, and I want medical settings with all medical personnel to be safe zones just like schools because everyone goes to that component one time or another in their life if not multiple times and how am I doing um I still have a sense of distrust when somebody says well yeah it was really not that bad um I just just step away I said you have no idea of this internal struggle and I hide that internal struggle and um and sometimes I can't hide it and um, that's a hard day. And, and, and there are moments where Matt and I might have a disagreement or whatever. And then we just have to chill it out. And then, and then we come back because he's the gift. He's the gift not from clawing. He's the gift of being in family. Liz White, uh, along with her son, Matt, were featured on the Sick podcast. Um, Liz, thank you so much for sharing your story, and thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. Matt, thank you. Thank you. We're also on the phone with Jody Madeira, law professor at Indiana University. Thanks for your insight, Jody. Thank you very much. Our producers are Drew Dodlin and Maggie Galon. Scott Cameron's our managing editor. Our show is engineered by Adam Gross. If you'd like a podcast of this show or any past show, you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Join us tomorrow when we'll talk about how Indiana's libraries are changing with the times. What should a public library be in 2020? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at All In Indiana. I'm Matt Pelser. Thanks for listening. This is All In.